Today, I'm going to be discussing Melvin Krantzberg's first law of technology and how it intersects with certain discussions of political theory. I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're listening to the Polyp Podcast. The purpose of today's short discussion is to explore the history of Melvin Krantzberg's first law of technology. So Krantzberg laid out his six laws of technology at his inaugural address as president of the Society for the History of Technology, shot on October 19th, 1985. What we're going to do today is explore his first law and how that intersects with other elements of the philosophy of technology and also political theory. Before I do that, though, I'm going to read you out exactly what he says his first law is. And also, if you haven't already done so, go check out last week's episode, where I'm in conversation with Kevin Bloor on understanding global politics. And also check out social media, where you'll be able to find Pollitt on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and YouTube. Okay, let's roll with Grantsburg. So as I say, the first part of this episode will be me simply laying out Krantzberg's first law of technology in his own words. And the second half will simply be my discussion. So let's start with the first. So Krantzberg's first law reads as follows. Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. By that I mean that technology's interaction with the social ecology is such that technical developments frequently have environmental, social, and human consequences that go far beyond the immediate purposes of the technical devices and practices themselves. And the same technology can have quite different results when introduced into different contexts or under different circumstances. Many of our technology-related problems arise because of the unforeseen consequences when apparently benign technologies are employed on a massive scale. Hence, many technical applications that seemed a boon to mankind when first introduced became threats when their use became widespread. For example, DDT was employed to raise agricultural productivity and to eliminate disease-carrying pests. Then we discovered that DDT not only did that, but also threatened ecological systems, including the food chain of birds, fishes, and eventually man. So the Western industrialized nations banned DDT. They could afford to do so, because their high technological level enabled them to use alternative means of pest control to achieve the same results at a slightly higher cost. But India continued to employ DDT, despite the possibility of environmental damage, because it was not economically feasible to change to less persistent insecticides, and because, to India, the use of DDT in agriculture was secondary to its role in disease prevention. According to the World Health Organization, the use of DDT in the 1950s and 1960s in India cut the incidence of malaria in that country from 100 million cases a year to only 15,000, and the death toll from 750,000 to 1,500,000 per annum. 
Is it surprising that the Indians view DDT differently from us, welcoming it rather than banning it? The point is that the same technology can answer different questions differently depending on the context into which it is introduced and the problem it's designed to solve. Thus, while some American scholars point to the dehumanising character of work in modern factory, D.S. Naipaul, the great Indian author, assesses it differently from the standpoint of his culture, saying, quote, Indian poverty is more dehumanising than any machine, end quote. Hence, in judging the efficacy of technological development, we historians must make cognizance of varying social contexts. It's also imperative that we compare short-range and long-range impacts. In the 19th century, romantic writers and social critics condemned industrial technology for the harsh conditions under which the mill workers and coal miners laboured. Yet, according to Ferdinand Bradell, conditions on the medieval manor were even worse. Certain economic historians have pointed out that although the conditions of the early factory workers left much to be desired, in the long run the workers' living standards improved as industrialization brought forth a torrent of goods that were made available to an ever wider public. Of course, those long-run benefits were small comfort to those who suffered in the short run. Yet, it is the duty of the historian to show the differences between the immediate and long-range implications of technological developments. Although our technological advances have yielded manifold benefits in increasing food supply, in providing a deluge of material goods, and in prolonging human life, people do not always appreciate technology's contributions to their lives and comfort. Nicholas Rescher, citing statistical data on the way people perceive their conditions, explains their dissatisfaction on the paradoxical ground that technical progress inflates their expectations faster than it can actually meet them. Of course, the public perception of technological advantages can change over time. A century ago, smoke from an industrial smokestack was regarded as a sign of a region's prosperity. Only later was it recognised that the smoke was despoiling the environment. There were technological fixes, of course. Thus, one of the aims of the Clean Air Act of 1972 was to prevent the harmful particulates emitted by smokestacks from falling on nearby communities. One way to do away with this problem was to build the smokestacks hundreds of feet high, then, a few years later, we discovered that the sulphur dioxide and other oxides, when sent high into the air, combined with water vapour to shower the earth with acid rain that's polluted lakes and caused forests to die hundreds of miles away. Unforeseen disbenefits can thus arise from presumably beneficent technologies. For example, although advances in medical technology in water and sewage treatment have freed millions of people from disease and plague and have lowered infant mortality, these have also brought the possibility of overcrowding the earth and producing, from other causes, human suffering on a vast scale. Similarly, nuclear technology offers the prospect of unlimited energy resources, but it's also brought the possibility of worldwide destruction. That is why I think that my first law, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral, should constantly remind us that it's in the historian's duty to compare short-term versus long-term results, the utopian hopes versus the spotted actuality, the what might have been against what actually happened, 
and the trade-offs among various goods and possible bads. All of this can be done only by seeing how technology interacts in different ways with different values and institutions, indeed with the entire socio-cultural milieu. Okay, so that was by Melvin Kranzberg, and it's a section taken from Technology and History, Kranzberg's Law, in Technology and Culture, 27.3, pages 544-560, and the quote was from pages 545-548. to 548. What we see in Kranzberg's first law of technology is a sense that technology is open-ended in relation to its moral and ethical potentiality. Technology is neither good nor inherently bad, but rather contains the capability to adapt and change in relation to both A, the user or employer of technology, and B, the locality or social and normative context in which that piece of technology is employed or engaged with. Nonetheless, the key takeaway from Kranzberg's first law should be the overarching common unforeseenness that sits within the potentiality of all technology. A single piece of technology can shift in its condition as being good, bad or neutral in result from any unforeseen circumstances, adjusting its past trajectory in such a manner. The example that Kranzberg gives is of the pesticide diclodrophinilicrinithane. <laughs> DDT. That's the example that Kranzberg gives, is of DDT, <laughs> with which the unforeseen circumstances of its ecological effect led to its ultimate regulation and its shift from so-called good technology. And good technology is one that dramatically aids, in this case, agricultural yields in reducing those plants spoiled by insects and pests. And it's reduced to that of bad technology, which causes harm. Hence, it is significant that we understand technology in the political domain with Kranzberg's first law in mind. For instance, amidst her exceptionally accessible theorising and recalling of experiences with networked protest movements in the early 2010s, Zeynep Tefeci recalls how technology alters the landscape in which human social interaction takes place citing Kranzberg's first law in regards to the effect of social media on the political sphere. As social media began as a means for old friends, past schoolmates and family members to reunite and communicate, it would not necessarily have been within the foresight of their Silicon Valley founders, coders and investors that Facebook, Twitter, BlackBerry Messenger and Reddit would become the first political salons for democratic activists across the globe. Actually, much in the way that philosopher and critical theorist Jürgen Habermas argues that coffee houses became the discursive site for political dissent as a cornerstone of the public sphere during the Enlightenment, as what he calls, quote, seedbeds of political unrest, end quote. Similarly, the same could be said for the use of precisely these platforms for illiberal activity. 
The fact that election rigging the January the 6th, 2021 storming of the Capitol or the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, were equally coordinated on these same platforms demonstrates that social media, as a mode of technology, is not simply good in itself. Rather, it can just as much lead to mass democratization as it can democratic backsliding and mass surveillance, given the context and the manner of its outside that of its intended purpose as technology, i.e. in a context that was not foreseen by the neoliberal Prometheans of Silicon Valley. Broadening our use of the term technology to include a wider array of increasingly abstract entities, the creation and use of certain algorithms can be utilised as an illustration of precisely this same necessity to keep Kranzberg's first law of technology in mind. In 2018, whilst researching face perception, Stanford University's Yilin Wang and Michael Kaczynski forged an artificially intelligent computer algorithm that could determine the facial features of those who self-identify as both gay and lesbian to a 91% and 83% accuracy, respectively. On the one hand, such a technology, in this case the algorithm, allows us to greater understand and research the relationship between sexuality and physical composition, a link that is still subject to a wide discussion as to its even existence. This is the beneficial capacity of such a technology, but only within a liberal humanist context. If such a technology were to be acquired by, say, the governments of Afghanistan, Brunei, Iran, Mauritania, Nigeria, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Sudan, the UAE or Yemen, for instance, whereby the capital punishment of homosexuality is statutorily exercised, its effect would be the thoroughly dystopian abetting of persecution and state-sanctioned mass murder. Although it would be the most indulgent of speculation, to claim a trace of any influence in his work. When reading Kranzbert's thoughts, I really can't help but be drawn back to the tool analysis of Martin Heidegger in both Being and Time and his The Question Concerning Technology. It's well beyond the scope and intention of this short discussion to comment on the relationship between Heidegger's grasp of technology and how this compares and contrasts that of Kranzberg. However, for the sake of drawing out a surface-level connection, such a potential to moral and ethical shift in regards to the unforeseenness of technological potentiality and usage can be thought to stem in a Heideggerian and phenomenological mode of analysis, to the manner in which the physical usage and purpose of a particular object is permanently in flux. With potential usages and purposes of usages withdrawn, ready to be unveiled. For Heidegger, technical objects as equipment Zeug, slide between readiness at hand, Zuhandenheit, a tool in its withdrawn state, and presence at hand, Vorhandenheit, a tool in a condition of usable accessibility. An aspect of overlap, perhaps, between these two frameworks of thinking about technology, equipment and tools, is the condition of flux they are in between usage as a particular piece of technology, i.e. between its particular 
uh, between its uh, cryptic condition in withdrawal from employment and its renewed presence through a distinct usage. For instance, a bayonet can be thought of in one condition as a piece of bad technology, present in hand as a tool of war on the front line of a conflict. Afterwards, withdrawal into a condition of readiness at hand, slipping from existence as a forgotten object sitting in the sheath attached to one's belt. Much like the way the floor as, ob as object or oxygen as object slips from existence consistently and constantly for us. The bayonet regains a presence at hand as a cooking implement around the campfire. Or perhaps even as an antique for aesthetic show. <laughs> In this, any object, and thus by extension any technology, is neither good nor bad nor neutral, but intimately connected to the contextual milieu in which it is utilised, withdrawn and redefined as present to hand, always, always open to the manner in which an object may become present to hand in a state outside the horizontal purview of its creator, open always to potentiality. This is actually known to anyone who's attempted to use the handle of a screwdriver as a hammer, or their teeth as scissors, a calculator as a ruler, or in my case once when I was an undergraduate, a boot as a drinking receptacle, <laughs> or even their Facebook profile to incite political dissent. These are all replications or iterations of a similar phenomena. Thus, through its emphasis on, in fact, the non-neutrality and amorality of technology, what we can tease out from Kranzberg's first law is a certain social responsibility for the technology that we forge. When technology is utilised outside of its initial context in an unforeseen and regressive or reactionary manner, it has surpassed its usage from within the horizon of its creator, and at this point becomes unanchored from its initial purpose or use as a piece of good technology in its initial stages. In this vein, it's the responsibility of our social and political associations to be aware of this always imminently potential shift. To be clear, and let's be clear, this is not to state that regulation is required to be all-encompassing, nor criminally enforceable, necessarily. Rather, the claim I'm making is that, as an extension of Kranzberg's first law of technology, we cannot assume that any mode or use of technology is immune from moral or ethical inversion through a wholly novel usage of that same object in a distinct context or environment that simply was not foreseen by its creator. An appreciation of this condition may just make for the more responsible public regulation of new technologies and a wider normative appreciation of how any technology can be turned on its head for some gain by someone, somewhere, for some purpose. So you've been listening to me, Kieran O'Meara, talking about Melvin Krantzberg's first law of technology on the Pollitt podcast. If you haven't done so already, please go and check out last week's episode where I'm in conversation with Kevin Bloor on understanding global politics. And don't forget also to check out our social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and YouTube. And lastly, don't forget that when you're in the mood for a think, think Pollitt at 
www.thinkpollet.com. See you soon.